0: Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. Please give ear to the word of God. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. One of the most shocking military upsets in the history of the world happened during our Revolutionary War when a ragtag colonial militia was able to somehow defeat the mighty army of the British Empire. There are a lot of reasons why that was able to take place, but one of them was because of the strategic tactics used in battle by the colonial armies. They had learned a lot from fighting alongside of the Indians during the French and Indian War, as well as fighting against them in other settings. But they used what we now call guerrilla warfare, which depends upon deception, depends on ambushes and hit-and-run tactics. You see, the British troops were used to fighting by gentlemen's rules in their wars in Europe, where they would wear brightly colored uniforms and march in step in great companies across wide open fields and then line up and stand there in one line shooting at each other. That's how they were used to doing war, and when they got to the colonies to put down the, the rebellion of the colonial armies, they found that they didn't wear bright uniforms. They wore dark clothes. They hid behind rocks and shot from behind trees, and they were considered, they were considered barbarians for the way in which they waged war. Now we look at tactics like that We look at tactics like that, and we say, well, that's just normal warfare. But there's been a new form of fighting that now has the great empires and worlds shaking in their boots and not knowing how to address it. It's the warfare waged by terrorists. It violates every one of the Geneva Conventions the rules, the humanitarian rules that the civilized world has used for a long time to try to keep some kind of decency, if there is such a thing, in warfare. It involves suicide bombings, hostage-taking of civilians, massacring civilians, using civilians as human shields for military targets. These things were unthinkable a couple of generations ago. And the Western world doesn't know how to respond. We've always understood that atrocities happen during warfare, but for the first time in history, we're having to fight an enemy that considers atrocities an, a means to victory as its main weapon in its arsenal. Well, as our governments wrestle with how to win this war, I'm here to tell you this morning that the church has the only way to ultimately win that war, because it's a war about truth. Ultimately, our governments are only equipped to deal with the symptoms of the disease. We have the Word of God, which deals with the core, the root, of what we call terrorism. We face a people whose religion, philosophy and worldview justifies killing innocent people and eagerly facing death in order to achieve self- selfish purposes people that are willing to die for those reasons are hard to defeat. We have the truth revealed by God and imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. We, What we believe is not just our opinion, it's God's opinion. It's the true religion, it's the true philosophy, it's the true worldview. And it is the only hope for a world that is groping in the darkness. As we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, we have seen that it is a book of philosophy. That's its purpose within the whole canon of scripture. It's to address the most important question that human beings have to address, which is, what is the meaning and purpose of my life? That's what the whole book is about. And we've seen that the premise that the author, whether it was King Solomon or some other great king in Israel, but whoever the author was, this very wise author, the premise of the book, as we've seen, is that he wanted to answer the question, and he wants us to wrestle with the question, what if, and I underline what if, what if this world is all there is? That phrase he uses over and over and over again through the entire book, under the sun. What if what's under the sun this physical reality, this, this life that we live on this planet, uh, under the curse, under the sun, what, is, what if this is all there is and there's nothing else? What would the meaning and purpose of life be then? And we have seen as we've worked through these many chapters that what this book lays out for us is that the best you can hope for under the sun is to enjoy fleeting, simple pleasures that the creator has built into this world. Things like good food and drink, a satisfying day of hard work, a marriage, or even, as we saw last week, the, the excitement of, and strength of youth. These are good things, and if God allows you, and you never know who's going to get them and who isn't, but if God allows you to experience them, he says, enjoy them, if this is all there is, because that's the best you can hope for. But, he says, because death is the end of the story for each one of us. And he keeps coming back to that. The reality of death. What that means for his ultimate question is what is the meaning and purpose of life? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's the final word. If this life is all there is, then everything is meaningless. As we've been working through this, I've been struck again and again and again that the perspective of this hypothetical perspective that the book of Ecclesiastes lays before us is the view of our culture. It's been an amazing portrayal of how people think out there in the world. Because we live in a culture that is so at peace, so wealthy, so prosperous, so comfortable, that we we find it very easy to live for what's under the sun. That's what we live for, no matter what we say we live for what we really live for is what good experiences we can experience here under the sun it also helps to understand why we are so reluctant to die for our cause because death makes what we live for meaningless so it's better just to isolate yourself acquire as many toys as you can make your life as comfortable as possible until death comes that's what a culture is like that doesn't have a hope beyond the sun or beyond the grave. And We saw that last week because as, as Q, the author that we talk about, the hypothetical teacher, professor, preacher that we keep referring to in Ecclesiastes, who is a, we think, a creation. He may have based it on a real teacher, a real scholar in his day, but but we think it's hypothetical that he created a voice to speak through that would say, I have searched everything under the sun. I have explored every aspect of life. Wealth, education, wisdom, marriage, youth. I've explored every aspect of life. And at the end of it, because of death, because it's all fleeting and it goes away in a moment, it's all meaningless. This speaker has given his final word in verse 8 that we read last week. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Now again, just to remind you, he's called the preacher. He was introduced, this hypothetical teacher was introduced back in verse 1 of the first chapter. The word preacher is koheleth in Hebrew, and that word in Hebrew means one who assembles people together to teach them. And so most translations call him the preacher, but I think that actually gives a wrong connotation in English because... We think of a preacher in a setting like this, but actually this was somebody who is more like a scientist. He's actually, his whole purpose, his whole method was to study life under the sun and, and to only use what he could determine to be true by his observation. What he could see, he could taste, he could touch. That's all he would allow into consideration. And to try to find meaning and purpose under the sun alone. And so that's why I call him a teacher more than a preacher, and I've been calling him Professor Q because he's a scholar. We got his final word in verse 8, but here what you'll notice in verse 9 is that the voice changes. And the author who wrote the book, whether it was Solomon or somebody else, the author who's writing the book now speaks of the preacher or the teacher or Professor Q speaks of him in third person. So now this is the voice of the author himself, and he wants to get to the point of why he included this book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. And he begins by giving an evalu- a quick evaluation of this Professor Q, this teacher, this preacher. He says in verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And I think that's interesting because we've seen that. That's why, in a sense, I think preacher, maybe preacher is a little more appropriate because He's not just a scholar, he's not just interested in finding knowledge. He was very interested, we've seen through all these chapters, in trying to tell us how to live wisely in light of this. And that's what a preacher does. A preacher imparts truth, but his concern is pastoral. It's that you be able to apply what has been taught in order to live well. We said that at the very beginning of our study that in all of the wisdom literature books of the Old Testament, in Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, wisdom isn't just knowledge. It's not just acquiring a bunch of knowledge. Wisdom is having knowledge and being able to apply it well to your complicated life. That's what wisdom is. And he says that this preacher, teacher, was wise. And his heart was to impart wisdom to others. And then he praises his work ethic. He says he was weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He wants to make sure we understand that this teacher who had this under-the-sun perspective on life didn't leave any stone unturned. He explored every aspect of life. He was exhaustive in his scholarly research. And he says he sought to find words of delight. And I think that was Q's greatest frustration, wasn't it? There are very few pleasant words in this book. A lot of dark matter in this book. A lot of difficult subjects. Not many encouraging words, although there are some. But that's what he wanted. He wanted to be able to impart not just wisdom to apply to life well, but he wanted to impart hope. Something to take pleasure in. Something to, to, to delight in. And yet, he kept bumping up against death, and therefore meaninglessness. It says, he go, it goes on to say, and I think this is an important phrase to catch, speaking about what this preacher's perspective on life and what he taught us was. He says, uprightly he wrote words of truth. I've been trying to underline that again and again as we've been working our way through this, that everything that the preacher, the teacher, Professor Q, everything he says is true insofar as it goes. If you start with his assumption that What's under the sun is all there is. Everything he says is true. Matter of fact, we've been amazed at how accurate it is describing life under the sun. It's just not the whole truth. He's leaving out big, important parts of the truth that would give meaning and purpose, but he did that deliberately so that we would see what life under the sun is if that's what we live for. This dark view of life that's presented to us in Ecclesiastes comes straight straight from the spirit of God. He's the ultimate author of this book. And it's important that we understand that it's true insofar as it goes. At the uh, women's Bible study Wednesday morning, branching out, they had me come in to do question and answer this week, which I do at the end of their studies. And I commended them when I got up to speak and I said, you know, I'd heard that, you know, at the beginning of the semester that they were going to study judges (laughs) And so I said, Wow, you guys are really brave to take on judges. That's a very dark and difficult book. And then I remember that I have to come and answer all the hard questions at the end. But I'm, I'm even more brave, I guess. But when we when one of the first questions I that I got from the group was, Why is this book in the Bible? It's so depressing. Why is it there? And my answer to that was that. We need that view of the reality of life under the sun in order to understand the glories of the gospel. We need to have our eyes opened to see what life without a word from God, without a Savior coming and dying for our sins, what that life looks like. We need to see what life, if death is the end of all things, what that life looks like. We need that information to have a right worldview to live our lives in this fallen world as much as we don't want to hear it. I said to them, I said, it's, you know, we live in a particularly difficult generation for grasping this dark side of life because we all grew up watching too many Disney movies. where everybody's Everybody ha- always has to end with a happily ever after, but that's not what life under the sun is like, and we need to know that. I said to them that Ecclesiastes, like the book of Judges, is like medicine we don't want to take it it tastes bad going down but we need it and it makes us better and that's what these books in the bible are here for that's how we know this is god's word because men wouldn't write this book only god would then the author goes on to the blessings and dangers of pursuing wisdom look at verse 11 he says the words of the wise are like goads we don't use that word very often A goad was a farmer's tool or a herdsman's tool. It was a long stick, and it had some kind of point on the end. There were many different things that were used to make it sharp on the end with a point. But the purpose was, if you were managing livestock, the purpose was to poke them, hurt them, motivate them to go the direction you want them to go. That's what a goad was. These dark words of wisdom from Ecclesiastes are like goads to us. They're sharp. They prod us. They make us move in a direction and to see things that we wouldn't rather see. But it's good for us. It's the direction we need to go. That's the way a lot of God's word is for us, is to prod us to go the way that the Lord knows we need to go. And then he says, and they're like nails firmly fixed. Like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Nails are also sharp and they also can inflict pain, but I think the main idea here is that they're driven deep. Nails driven deep, firmly established. That's what the truth of God's word is. It penetrates to the separation of soul and spirit. I mean, it it cuts deep into us, and it sets itself there as as a rock that we can build our lives upon. It's firmly established, firmly fixed. It's permanent. It's unchangeable. It's trustworthy. It's foundational to life. That's what we build our worldview on and our philosophy and our religion. How do we know that these words are true? He says because they are given by one shepherd. And you'll notice probably if you have ESV or most modern translations, the shepherd is capitalized there. That's an interpretation. Uh, There's some debate about what the shepherd is referring to, but the vast majority of commentators think it should be capitalized because it's referring to the shepherd. The one the Old Testament recognizes in Psalm 23 is the Lord or Ezekiel 34. He is the one that goads us with his word to go the direction we should go he's the one who firmly fixes the truth of God's word deep in our souls, so we can build our lives upon it it's his word it's ironic to me that so much, almost all of the book of Ecclesiastes is written from a perspective, a hypothetical perspective of someone who only acknowledges what's under the sun and does not allow for revelation from God to give meaning and purpose to life, and yet God includes it in his revelation to us. It's kind of ironic to me, but very effective, I think. And then in verse 12, you have a warning. It says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. A healthy skepticism is what he's recommending to anything beyond what is written in God's word. Now, he's not saying that there aren't true things out there outside of God's word that we can discover. There are true statements, you'll find, that aren't explicitly written in God's word. Two plus two equals four. That's true. And there's no verse that says that. But you've got to measure everything by what the word of God reveals to be true. Even two plus two is four. Had better be consistent with what God has revealed inerrantly in his word to be true. Everything in life has to be compared to the word of God. Everything. Every truth claim. And then, of course, in verse 12, we also have the favorite verse of students everywhere. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. James, so many of our students aren't here this week. They're getting some rest from their weariness, but we're entering that part of the semester when they can really identify with that. Did you know that until 1900, the, the, total, the sum total of human knowledge doubled about every 100 years? And then by the end of World War II, the sum total of human knowledge was doubling every 25 years? And that now they estimate that the sum total of human knowledge doubles every 12 months? And they're predicting it's not going to be very long before the sum total of human knowledge doubles every 12 hours. There are a lot of truth claims out there. There is a lot of knowledge out there to be had, and our access to it is far beyond anything our grandparents could have imagined. But of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. We have an insatiable desire for knowledge and wisdom because we are made in the image of a very wise God who is truth itself. We have an insatiable hunger, but what the writer here is saying is go to God's word as the foundation to all truth and measure all claims to truth by his word. There are too many people that go looking for truth and meaning and knowledge and bypass the word of God or ignore the word of God or forget the word of god. And that's a dead end. You see the sharp and firmly established words of the one shepherd are all that we really need. That's what our cre- our, our creeds and confessions tell us. Is that everything we need for faith and life is contained in the scriptures. The word of god is sufficient. There's no person who's ever lived and breathed on the planet who couldn't get through life with only knowing what the Word of God reveals is true. And everything else is measured by it. Paul said to Timothy, he told Timothy to watch out for those who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Those are the kind of people we're talking about. People who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I wish somebody would go down and spray paint that on the front of Old Main. Well, don't do that. That would get you in trouble. But (laughs) there's more effective ways to get that message across to, to Old Main, I'm sure. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So let's get to the bottom line. We've been working at this for many months. Let's get to the final word in the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 13. What is the way to meaning and purpose in life? He says there, the end of the matter, very abrupt, he wants to grab our attention, the end of the matter, all has been heard, time to listen to the conclusion, to all of our studies in Ecclesiastes. He says, Q in verse 8 says, all is vanity, everything's meaningless, but he doesn't get the last word, here's the final word, here's the word from God. You want to know what the meaning and purpose of life is? Fear. That's all you need to know. That's the meaning and purpose of life under the sun. Fear God. Live for the one who is above the sun. The one who called into existence all things by the power of his word alone. Live a God-centered life. Fear God. That's the meaning and purpose of life. Fear. Isn't that an interesting word? If. The the scriptures were going to use one word to summarize in some way our whole complex response to to this creator who not only created all things but governs all things and leads all things according to his perfect will. The one word it uses to describe our response to this creator is fear. That's not a word we would have chosen. We want a cuddly God. We want a God that will do what we want. A God that will make our life easy and comfortable. I'm just fascinated that the one word the scripture uses is fear to describe our relationship to God. According to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And according to Ecclesiastes, it's the end of all wisdom. And Paul says in Romans 3 that a lack of the fear of God is is the mark of the unbeliever. He says in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what that says is that the fear, this fear, this, this wholehearted, whole life response to the, to the very reality of who God is, is something that only the Holy Spirit can do through the process of regeneration. He must plant fear within our hearts because we're not born with it when it comes to God. But it's the key to life. It's the purpose and meaning of life. In Isaiah 33, verses 5 and 6, it says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. saying the same thing that the author is saying here in Ecclesiastes 12. The fear of the Lord is the key to all the treasures of the universe. So let me break down what the fear of the Lord is. There's four elements to fear of the Lord, and they build upon one another. Four elements to the fear of the Lord. And it's, it's complex, because the whole idea of how we respond to our Creator is a complex concept. It begins with an awareness of His infinity, His immensity, His power, and His glory. That's where it begins. And we've lost this even in the church these days, let alone in our culture. I was struck by this because this past Monday... My wife and I were in uh, Harrisburg for another reason, and driving back, I, I drove by and I saw a sign for the Capitol building, and that reminded me that a few weeks ago I read a comment that said that the Pens- that I didn't know this that the, the Capitol building of the state of Pennsylvania is probably the most beautiful Capitol building of all the states in the Union. And I don't know whether it's true or not, but I thought, well, you know, I went there when I was a little kid, but I haven't been there so long. I want to go back and see it again. See what's so special about it. And I was I was in awe. You walk into that main Court, you know, court, the main entryway, and and just everything about the building puts you in awe. And I was reminded of how when you go to Washington, D.C., every building, all those memorials, it's meant to impress upon you that you are in the presence of something far beyond you. Great. I mean, the Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, the... The Capitol building, it's all like in ancient Greek and Roman culture, they built things big because the idea was that there's these big universal principles that are bigger than us, and we are, we are tiny in the face of these things. There was a sense of, of the greatness of something far beyond us. And we don't live with that. We wouldn't build buildings in Washington, D.C. today like we did back then, because our worldview has changed, our philosophy has changed. You see, God is so big. He knows so much about us. He's, he's so powerful. He's so full of glory. That's where the fear of the Lord begins. You're this tiny little speck on this tiny little planet in this huge universe. And that brings us to the second point, is that now that you've seen, your eyes have been opened to see how great and glorious and powerful this God is who spokes the universe into existence, you begin to have an awareness of his personal presence and awareness of who you are and what you're doing. I mean, it's one thing to say that God is that great and that big and that powerful, but he knows your thoughts. He knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. I mean, when you think about in in the Psalms, David thinks about the heavens. He looks up at the stars in the sky and the heavens, and he didn't know anything about the heavens back then (laughs) compared to what we know today. I mean, they tell us that the star that is the farthest away from us Is six billion light years away. Now, I'm not a scientist, so that number doesn't, just kind of, it's like gobbledygook. I don't know what that number means. Well, just to simply break it down into a light year. A light year is how far light will travel in a year traveling at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. That's a light year. Do you have any way of getting your brain around that concept? how far light would travel in a year at 186,000 miles per second. Now, take that time, 6 billion. And that's how far away they think the star is that we can see is from Earth. And the God who knows the number of hairs on your head put it there. And he named it. And he maintains it day in and day out. That's why David, when he says... He thinks of the glory of God and he looks up at the heavens and the stars. Remember how he responds to that? He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? How is it that you even notice me here, God? But, he goes on to say in Psalm 139, you have searched me and you know me. You know my rising up. You know my sitting down. You know a word before it's on my tongue. He he concludes that by such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot contain it. That's the fear of the Lord. What you're hearing there, the tone behind what David is saying, is the fear of the Lord. This great and glorious, powerful God who made the universe knows the words that are going to be on my tongue even before I say them. That's what produces fear before God. Add to that an awareness of the holiness of God. That this great and glorious God who knows everything about us, far better than we know ourselves, is also a perfectly holy God who is absolutely righteous, who cannot even look upon sin That he must destroy sin forever. That's his attitude towards sin. When Isaiah said he saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and had the angels around him praising the Lord, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You remember Isaiah's response. He fell on his face and says, Woe is me, I am undone before a God that's this holy. Now you're really beginning to see the fear. It's not just the fear of the immensity and the omnipresence of God, but it's a fear of his holiness. But then the fourth awareness is the one that draws us close to him. It's the awareness of his love and mercy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's why John later wrote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You see, that's the crowning part of the fear of the Lord, is that this God, who is so great and so powerful and knows us so intimately and is so holy that he cannot even look upon any sin, has sent his Son to die for us and to take the wrath and punishment that we deserve for all eternity upon his Son and poured it out completely and paid it in full. And now he has called us his children by grace through faith alone. That's amazing grace. And that's the last element of the fear of the Lord. You stand in fear before his grace. Awe, reverence. That's what a relationship with our creator is. The fear of the Lord summarizes our reverence, our trust, our submission, our love, and ultimately our worship. That's what the fear of the Lord is. We live for him. 100%. Verse 13 goes on to give the effect of that kind of fear of the Lord. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's not do this and do that. It's do this and this is what will happen. If you fear the Lord, you will keep his commandments. Because that's what that attitude and that relationship with God produces in sinners like us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1, since we have these promises, Paul says, and he's talking about the gospel promises, the promises of grace, the promises of redemption, the promises of full salvation, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, redemption doesn't take away the fear of God, it intensifies the fear of God in us and produces Holiness. And that kind of holiness is not legalism. That kind of holiness is based in love and thankfulness and it draws people who are being born again by the Spirit. It draws them to the gospel. The fear of the Lord drives us to worship Him. The fear of the Lord drives us to pursue holiness and to be like Him. The fear of the Lord drives us to serve the needs of others instead of ourselves. The fear of the Lord drives us to tell others about him, that they might be able to experience this awe before his power and his mercy like we have. And then verse 14 points beyond death. Isn't it interesting? Q couldn't point beyond death. He didn't know anything beyond death. He assumed death was the end. But the author in verse 14 points beyond death. And he points us to the day of final judgment. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, because of the gospel, because of the cross of Christ, we rejoice in the day of judgment coming. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We long for the day of judgment because Christ has already paid for all that we've done wrong. And we know that when the day of judgment comes and Christ returns, every wrong is going to be made right. Isn't that what bothered Q so much? It's that This is a world filled with injustice. It's filled with chaotic, indiscernible purposes of the hand of God. But when the day of judgment comes, we're going to see that everything works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. You see, the fact, That judgment is coming, and he's going to judge everything, every secret thing, every thought, every word, every deed that every human being has ever carried out on this planet under the sun. The fact that that judgment is coming, you know what that means? It means everything matters. Not nothing matters because of death, but everything matters because everything matters to God. And that which is wrong will be made right. That which is unjust will be made just. And our salvation will be made complete. And all the promises of God will be fulfilled. And everything will make sense in the light of the presence of Christ. You see, what we're talking about here, to get back to the bottom line, this is the true biblical philosophy And in the face of this true biblical philosophy, all the ideas of men are lies and errors. This is the truth that will one day be vindicated. This is the one philosophy, the one worldview that will be universal when Christ comes again. The end of the matter, the purpose of life, the meaning of life is this. Fear God, obey his commandments, and look to the final day. That's how you live under the sun. That's the hope that's come to us by revelation. The American philosophy is this. The philosophy of our culture is this. Live for this life. The philosophy and the worldview of the terrorist is die for a selfish reward for you in eternity here let me close with the biblical philosophy as Paul lays it out in Romans 14 verse 8 for if we live we live to the Lord and if we die we die to the Lord so then whether we live or whether we die we are the Lord's fear God keep his commandments and look to the day when all will be made right let's pray Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. It has at times been strong medicine, been hard to process, hard to understand, hard to apply, and it has led us at times to despair of what we see in this world under the sun. But Lord, we thank you that having seen the bad news, we know that the good news is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for opening our eyes to see it. Thank you for giving us the hope of complete salvation and total and perfect justice to come when our Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his perfect kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. And Lord, we are so undeserving, but we're so thankful that your amazing grace that has made us a part of it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.